If you're someone who has a passion for cut flowers, our environment, and wants to make the world more beautiful, you're in the right place. Whether you're growing flowers for pleasure or profit, I'm on a mission to empower flower enthusiasts and professionals to help change the world around them. Whether you're just starting out and need a helping hand, or are looking to scale a substantial flower business, I'm your cut flower woman. Welcome to the Cut Flower Podcast. So, welcome to the Cut Flower Podcast. And today I have a guest that I'm absolutely honoured to introduce you to. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. David Beck, who is a reader in sustainable economics based at the Research Centre for Business in Society at Coventry University, which is in the UK. David has extensive experience undertaking research into sustainability within horticultural supply chain, especially cut flowers. So welcome, David. Do tell us about your journey and how you came to be at where you are today. Gosh, that's a big, big question to start with uh, there, Rob. Um, Yeah, we'll focus on one or two minor aspects of of that journey, focusing on where the flowers came from, I think. Uh, But thank you very much for the invite. It's a real pleasure to, to join you today. Um, and, and your listeners, of course. So, yeah. So, yeah, if you'd uh, asked me a few years ago, you know, is your future likely to involve much in the way of flowers? I think I'd have looked at someone um, in bemusement, frankly. Um, but it, it's all happened. It's funny how life takes its its sort of like um, twists and turns and you end up doing certain things. But in terms of flowers, horticulture and stuff, yeah, I mean, my upbringing, I was brought up in rural Norfolk um and flowers and things that grew were just all around me they were part of life whether it was you know through the family business uh, which was in corn seed agricultural stuff um or nah. just in the family garden that kind of thing you know roses were there daffodils were there there was a kitchen garden you ate homegrown produce so and all I was interested in was basically whacking cricket balls and tennis balls and all this other stuff was all around me and I'd be damaging all these things through my through my sources of entertainment as a kid but it but it's all there it's all part of um you know in your subconscious and what you just accept as normal and what you find comfortable I guess um so yeah so sort of as I, as I went into academia I'd always got this thing liked rural areas rural life and things just kind of evolved where opportunities for focusing my research um, into horticulture, agriculture more generally. And then, as we'll discuss in a bit, you know, cut flowers suddenly became part of that. And uh, it's and it's it's kind of nice. It's it's a very interesting industry um, in lots and lots of ways. And I have to say that if your research involves um, either going into fields where flowers are growing or into factories where they're being composed into bouquets, to be blunt, that's a damn sight nicer than going into a car factory or whatever else my colleagues yeah. have to do um, as, as part of, you know, they, they like cars and engineering and all that kind of thing. But for me, I'd, I'd rather be look, wandering around um, a supermarket and, and looking at the flowers and thinking that's something to do with my work than staring at a car showroom or a furniture sales room or, or whatever. So it's, it's kind of bright and vibrant to, in the industry to, to look into. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you're you right. You kind of end up where you, in a weird way, you come full circle. I did a degree in environmental chemistry because I was a failed doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't want to do, but I didn't even know what it was. And I certainly didn't read the syllabus before I went. And off I trundled to do this degree, which I actually really enjoyed. 
But when I qualified or graduated, there weren't really any jobs in the environment. I mean, you could go on and do a master's or a PhD, but there were no sort of, you needed to be, you could be employed by an oil company and you could sit in the corner and then make things up, but they didn't really want you. They just wanted to say they had an environmentalist. And then, you know, roll on many years, you come back full circle and found myself in cut flower production, which I never envisaged. I was a marketing director. I was never going to be a cut flower person. Hmm. and it kind of grabs you and you find yourself in a cut flower world and back into sustainability and eco and and it's like how did that happen I did my I did my dissertation in nitrates in fertilizer and now I'm back round going okay we need to make compost but it's kind of so you're right it's something in your childhood is inbred in you and you kind of then carry that and it comes back full circle but it's yeah it's weird yeah, maybe yeah. I would have been in academia. I wouldn't have been that clever, though, I don't think. I think. <laughs> no, no, I just find it already really interesting because we, I mean, in the modern world, we everybody seems to have to have an action plan and you're supposed to be doing these charts where everything is <laughs> planned out, whether it's in your, you know, whether it's a work project for, for the next few months or for your life plan. And, and it's like it just doesn't, but it shouldn't actually work in that kind of linear way. It should all just be about, you know, things like you say, looping around or you grab opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting and exciting. You don't know what's around the corner, but it's about, you know, where you come from and, and everything that, that just gives you that impetus to follow certain leads. And uh, you just never know where you're going to go. No, I think it's about being open to it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, during COVID, I started doing online courses and I wasn't expecting them to be as popular as they are Mm. and I certainly didn't expect to go in the direction I've gone in then and that was only a couple of years ago if you think now we're exactly three years until we went in our first lockdown weren't we and it's like did we really go in that lockdown and did that really happen and but it gave us opportunities as well Mm. to sit back and go okay now what yeah what does my life hold for the next 10 years um and people have joined the courses with no 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 plan and decided and now they've turned into flower farmers so it's kind of like how did that happen so I think it's about just being open to whatever your journey takes you um and accepting the opportunity that was there at the time definitely definitely you never know around the corner (laughs) why the interest in sustainability and supply chains because it's quite sustainability is obviously I mean I remember learning about sustainability and eco and the environment and then it went really quiet for quite a number of years and now it seems to be back on the agenda again but we're talking 30 years later so it's kind of like what's happened in those 30 years like <laughs> yeah yeah well it's a similar similar kind of thing for me so it's um yeah so when I was doing my undergrad back in the late 1980s that was when um, sustainability as a word actually started to creep into the mainstream discourse. Um, and that's where the, the the great quote that's always used about, you know, not, you know, sustainability is about protecting the, you know, your actions now protecting the future rather than the other way around. And there's a perfect quote that everybody always uses. I've just completely forgotten because it's Monday morning or whatever morning this happens to be. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, but, th- but that was when all those debates were really starting. And it was it was really interesting. So I'm a geographer by, you know, training. That's what I did in my undergrad. And geography is divided into physical and human. And they were often treated as these two separate, separate pathways. But at that particular point, um, the human impact on the environment, upon the physical geography was becoming a big area of study. Um, and, you know, it was in that era when, you know, when the, the, one of the first graphs was sort of published showing the changes in carbon dioxide concentrations in, in the atmosphere. And I remember, I think, I think it was my third year, you know, someone put this graph in a book and he looked at it and went, crumbs, that's a bit 
odd because you've got this sudden 10% increase over a very small period of time in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and clearly linked to the industrial revolution and you you know and you just thought well that's going to have an impact you you know you you change the concentration of anything in any area of life by 10% and it's going to produce um, a response and, and that's 30 odd years ago so now it's probably about 20% up or 30 <laughs> you know I mean you know it was a relatively small so that's it just those ideas that humans had impact on the environment and they weren't particularly good that was getting into my consciousness um you know and uh you know rainforests were becoming a big topic generally brazil all these all these were buzzwords that would kind of like crop up on you know channel four documentaries or panorama or something every now and again maybe into the news so that was all kind of ticking away in the brain Climate change is a really interesting one, and I've had a good think about that. Um, you know, where did that really come from? And actually, I think some of that goes back to a sense of understanding as a as a kid about supply chains in a rather unusual way, which um, was because that was the era of anti-apartheid protests against the, the regime in South Africa with the racialized discrimination. Um, why would I have been aware of that as a kid growing up in Norfolk? Well, because I was a cricket fan. And because ah. you'd watch cricket on telly and you'd see your county and there'd be these South African men doing incredibly well, but they weren't allowed to play at the international level. And that was something I wanted to know more about. So I did, you know, read biographies and things and learn more about, you know, the situation and, and decided it was something I didn't like. I didn't like this, this thing that people were excluded and, and couldn't, you know, partake in normal life in another country. I'm aware of the anti-apartheid movement, which tended to sort of like touch down in ordinary people's lives because you wouldn't buy grapes that came from South Africa or whatever. Yeah, um, wouldn't. Uh, and Barclays Bank, I think I remember something oh, about that time. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, gosh, yes, yeah. We had all the protests at the university. Barclays got uh, invaded by people more radical than me. Um, <laughs> that, now, now you mention it. Um, so there was this sense, though, that you as a consumer could have an influence on what was going on somewhere else in the world and that your choices had an impact. And that was really, really important. So there was this whole notion of, of boycotts and, and all this kind of thing. So you sort of like fast forward through life, then you just get on with life, blah, blah, blah. And then when I went into academia as a researcher, um, it was kind of like natural for me to fall back into an area of thinking about supply chains um, because then by then you've got fair trade starting to become a thing. And that's all about exactly the same stuff. It's about your choices and your responsibility for others. Mm-hmm um further down you know production lines so you know if you make a decision to buy i don't know a cup of coffee or bar of chocolate or whatever you know has it you know have you got the as one of the um geographers very famously writing has it got the fingerprints of exploitation all over that product which tends to take the fun out of it (laughs) you know don't want it anymore yeah Yeah. and it's like you know and i think that was david harvey writing about grapes you know the fingerprints of exploitation on the grapes and uh, and having subsequently stood in fields um you know in the developing world watching people who are exploited picking grapes you know i've literally seen that kind of manifest um in in reality so it was kind of like that yeah, it was kind of like a drive in me to understand more about what were called ethical supply chains. It was set up in the UK in late 1990s, uh, which was, I think, the world's first formalised attempt uh, through government funding to understand more about what happens in supply chains around the world and to protect workers' rights and to, to look at multi-stakeholder ways of 
dealing with those issues. And that, to me, was very, very interesting. And it was great that Britain was at the forefront of this and so forth. So, again, it's all about consciousness. And one of their, the first initiatives they had that um, went global was in South Africa, where the South African wine industry set up their own initiative as a pilot from the UK one. And I ended up doing some research on that early on in my academic career. And, uh, and I still... I'm linked in with those people and carry on with some of that research. So that's really where that interest came from, you know, was, was this idea really of about our responsibilities and the impacts, our choices, you know, anybody's choice, should I say, within a supply chain. You know, you buy a product that has influences across the globe if it's a global product, or as we'll talk about with flowers, it may be your choices to buy, buy some flowers from the person, you know, just, just in the next village who grows them in their little plot in their garden. That also has implications um, and, and is a reflect, you know, you're making a conscious choice to do that for certain sets of reasons and it has impact. So it's just that fascinating thing about the power we have as consumers about where we put our pound. Well, these days it's probably five pounds because you don't get any for a pound anymore, um, even in Poundland probably. It's uh, gone, gone mad. But um, yeah, so that's really what I'm interested in. So you've got that kind of interest there coming into environmental stuff and then stuff about responsibility within supply chains. And I guess that's where, you know, my work has coalesced out of all of that over um, two or three decades. So it's about consumer choice, isn't it? And we will mm. talk about flowers. I think the biggest issue with flowers, of course, is the labelling of flowers, which are not labelled. Um, and if we could somehow influence government to label flowers, then consumers have a choice, have a conscious choice then. At the moment, we have a definite unconscious choice. Mm. And I think um, education-wise, I don't think anybody would know that 90% of flowers are imported into the UK, mainly from Africa. Um, and that's people can't make that conscious choice, which I kind of find quite hard um, that there isn't a choice, there isn't a conscious choice. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, this this was one of the um, very interesting things that came up. So, with the the project on the sustainable cut flowers project that I um, set up with Jill, my colleague Jill Timms, where we set it up in the back end of 2016, and Jill's work at that time um, was looking actually at exactly that issue about the the disconnect between what consumers know about flowers, the flowers that they buy, and their actual journey and reality. And she was particularly looking then at the issue of certifications because, you know, like the certification most people know is obviously when you've got organic is a very well-known one, fair trade is another. Um, but, you know, even within food products, there's, there's all sorts of things you might see or, or look for, whether red tractors or whatever, you might not know yeah. what they stand for, but they're there, they represent something. Um, but with flowers, there was just literally, like you say, nothing, not even often usually um, place of origin. Um, you know, people would just come up with all kinds of assumptions about the, the background of the flowers, and uh, you know, um, yeah. So, and I think I think that's really really interesting. And then you have got the question of what, what then what, do, what would people do with that knowledge if they had it as well become becomes a factor because then that's all based on where would you get that knowledge from anyway to make make a choice in, in something. But I think most people would be very surprised if they knew knew the journey of, of their flowers um you know that they've got that have a certain representation frankly i think the same is actually true of food even if you can see it's come from you know spain or whatever i think if people actually saw the conditions and you know yeah. where tomatoes are grown in southern spain 
and they might think, gosh, that's all a bit different from this shiny little red thing I'm holding in my hand that looks so perfect. But, um, you know, that's all about the, the commodity fetishism as, um, you know, one group of academics talk about, you know, it's how we fetishize the product and we create our own, or the retailers, the branding people, they create a sense of what we understand from the appearance of the thing and the packaging it's in, which is often massively disconnected from the realities of its journey. And I'll give you a fairly semi-gruesome example of, of, of this. Uh, when I was in Cape Town um, three or four years ago, um, and there's this amazing flower market in the middle of Cape Town called Trafalgar, Trafalgar Place, where people have been selling flowers for, well, 150 years or something. Um, and they're nearly, nearly, or not all, but you know, a lot of the flowers are actually South African flowers, indigenous flowers that grow in the landscapes around, um, as well as imported well, roses that are grown in South Africa, not imported ones, but the locally grown ones and other other flowers. But it's predominantly the the, um, the indigenous ones. Anyway, amazing place, full of stories and culture, as all sorts goes on there. But I remember I was standing there sort of doing some data collection like us academics do, which is an excuse for standing around somewhere quite nice with a clipboard. And, um, and there was a lady there and she was talking to one of the sellers and it was all about her wedding. And, you know, they're preparing these, these beautiful flowers, X, Y and Z. And I'm standing there and I look to my left in all the flower buckets. A massive rat is running around, you know, doing its thing. And, and it was just this juxtaposition of the sheer horribleness of this great big fat rat and then there's this lady talking about beautiful flowers and her wedding so to me just couldn't have got you know that, that's, a, that's a very short part of the supply chain it was literally you know eight feet different she had no idea there were rats running around in the back of the, the flower buckets um and there she is talking about her idealized bouquet for you know the highlight of her life and, and, and all the rest of it so uh, yeah, that's that's a particularly stark and unpleasant example, but to me, it really brought home that disconnect between um, you know what actually often goes on in supply chains and and what the consumer envisions is actually happening. Very different, very different. You think about that. You think about a bridal bouquet that's full of Kenyan roses or Ethiopian roses or lilies from South America or whatever it happens to be, and obviously they've been quite heavily treated with pesticides herbicides and obviously they're they're treated with chemicals to to make the journey they've got a long journey to make and then deeply refrigerated and then arrive and the first thing a bride will do is sniff it and go "Ah, aren't these beautiful you think no don't do that and there were all the studies about you know there's a big study in in belgium that i read about Mm. like if you're actually sniffing a bouquet you're inhaling everything that was actually put in there and that florists in Belgium have been subjected to high levels of pesticides and herbicides. It's actually causing really bad issues with cancer and all sorts of things they're talking about. And you kind of think, and that's the first, that's exactly what you're talking about. It's a perception. We would the first thing we would do is smell them, of which they're very unscented anyway. But we would smell mm-hmm. them when we go, ah, these are lovely. And the second thing we wouldn't realise is that what we're inhaling is pretty awful. And but it's all about a consciousness, isn't it? And it's all about an education and boy, we've got a long way to go. You know, if we, if we lived another 50 years, which would be lovely, but if, I'm doubtful. But if I lived another 50 years, I wonder if we'd still be having that conversation or whether in that time something is going to change. Stay with us. We'll be right back. A small business. Do reels get you reeling? Is SEO just a three letters put together? Content planning something you know you should be doing, but just never get round to it. 
Do join our Growth Club online. What is it? It's a supportive community. It's all about growing your business. It provides trainings and guest speakers join us every month. Is it time to work on your business and not in it? The link for more information is in the show notes. Gosh, yeah, I mean, very big questions. And I think, I think, I think what we see, we know what we do tend to see in a lot of the, you know, European markets um, and the US as well is, there's definitely a, a, a growth in consumers who are wanting to know more about the provenance of all the products in their lives. Um, you know, and, and that, that is growing, um, even, you know, at the same time as you get this con- increasing consolidation amongst the mass produced you know, big box retailers as well. So there's these strange sort of like camp movement and counter movements going on, but definitely within flowers, that, that movement is getting bigger and bigger and globalizing. Um, you know, so as, as I know you're aware of the, the sustainable floristry network starting out in Australia with Rita Feldman and, and all her um, colleagues who are doing amazing work on promoting sustainable floristry which is shortly going to be launching, um, I think she's already launched actually, the, the course for florists with after a massive amount of research and very professional input from lots of people to create create this course. And it, it is all about unveiling what goes on um, within um, the industry, but then empowering people to make conscious choices that are more environmentally and socially sustainable, which, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, given some of the stakeholders she's got on board, that's going to going to become a very powerful project, you know, and it's one that Jill and I, are, you know, we connect quite a lot with Rita and we, we can see it, see it growing. Um, and that's connecting in with people in the States. It's connecting in with people in Europe. And then you've got other movements going on, you know, which in other places. I was talking to someone in California a couple of weeks ago who's setting up a, a business, you know, looking to procure from small scale sustainable um flower growers and you know and that's part of the criteria for this business buying them is they've got to meet certain sustainability criteria and i've put that person in touch with someone in the uk related to flowers from the farm because you've got the same debates going on and it's like well let's not waste time trying to recreate or trying to create two wheels in terms of how you assess and verify all these kind of things why not join forces you know and then i think with um, rita's people as well down down in oz they'll get on board and you know i think there's going to be an increasing sort of global movement pushing um you know that that part of the agenda and i, I think that's really interesting because that does then have an impact on the mainstream industry yeah. um, so because people you know you get all kinds of reactions but but ultimately though you know the big box retailers have got to be sensitive to to consumer behaviors and cons- you know we always hear about the consumer well the reality is there's dozens of types of consumer, most of whom are either con- contrary or hypocritical um, in, in what they do. But overall, there are, you know, more people are wanting to know more about what they eat, what they consume, and trying to make better decisions. And the, you know, certainly there's, there's debates about whether some of the younger generation are even more clued in and switched on to some of this stuff. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's yeah, you say it's, it's really interesting to see how that stuff moves. But then on the other hand, of course, you've got the fact that the vast majority of people don't care. And that, and actually their, their key thing is what they can afford. And that always becomes the answer. Well, I can only afford X. 
and that's what I'm going to buy um, because you know I, I can only go to mm. such a shop where you know the the meat pie is one pound twelve because that's all that's left in my pocket um, and it's you know and obviously you can't really argue against that but then you get into other debates around social justice and it's like well why should people be forced to go and buy a one pound twelve pie that's going to be about as nutritious as going and you know just won't be nutritious in the story <laughs> it's um you know that's another debate altogether but, but yeah so there's a, there's a lot going on in all these there spaces. is I, I mean i researched that um that floral design and sustainability that if we do it at that grassroots level and florists are trained in sustainability we've got we've got hope because hmm. they do not know about sustainability and they do not i mean all the courses that are still going on are still using oasis one number one and number two they're still using flowers which are not sustainable number two but they don't know any different. So sustainability, I mean, I taken my funeral arrangement today, all done in moss, and we'd actually put the flowers, the bulbs of the flowers into the moss. So you couldn't see them, but the bulb was hidden within the moss. And I explained that actually after the funeral, the the, the um, wife could grow those bulbs in her garden and that wouldn't, wouldn't that be lovely. And the, and the funeral director was absolutely staggered. And she said, what, this is all in moss? And I went, oh, did you not know about Oasis and the fact that it doesn't decompose in the environment? No. Right, okay. So I gave a sort of like quick five-minute discussion about, right, that's it, she says. And I said, well, churches in England are now not allowing Oasis mm. to be used because it's not sustainable in the environment. Are they not? So again, we're not doing a very good job in telling people what the situation is. And I think at floristry level, with the Sustainable Florist Network and also the training, I signed up to actually re- hear as soon as I could. If we start at that level, we've got a hope. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is, it's just about people. A lot of the time people just don't know, they don't understand. And it's, and it's about how that, how that messaging is pitched to people. But obviously people also need alternatives. Um, and that, that's where things can get very tricky. And I've certainly heard a lot of debates around, um, you know, what what the different alternatives are and how practical they are and how much they cost and yeah. all this kind of thing. But it, it's very, yes, it is very difficult to break people away from the behaviours they they're used to. And certainly, you know, you mentioned the you know the the church aspect there, and that's something I've heard from people about some of the literal wars that break out in church yeah. groups around around these things because you know you've got people who care very passionately about the environmental thing but then you've got people who care very passionately about doing things the same way that they've been done for the last 30 years or 50 years or whatever and you know um, I think someone I'm not going to name who it was but someone quite influential in the flower industry said he never come across anything quite as unholy as a as a church flower group yeah <laughs> the kind of debates that, that were had her you know around something that should just be an open and shut case I mean you know I mean, at the end of the day, why would you want to have a load of um, completely non-sustainable product littering graveyards? Or if it's cleared from the graveyard, then chucked in a bin to just sit in landfill for eternity. You know, it's but it's difficult getting that message out. And of course, you also have to deal with the, the, the power of the corporates in continuing to promote products that aren't sustainable and to use their phenomenal branding, marketing, and frankly, legal power as well. You know, so. I, um, when you look at some of Rita's materials, there's, there's, an, there's an academic team in Australia who have looked at floral foam. Um, you know, they've gone into the labs, they've, they've done all the tests and shown, you know, about how this plastic gets into the environment and, um, you know, and then gets into creatures, which is obviously not a good thing. And then they've looked at the bio-based 
example, and apparently it's the same because it's still a plastic and it has the same kind of effects going down. And you know, the kickback from the manufacturers were, was fairly strong, shall we say. It um, is, because I looked on a box of floral foam, well-known floral foam and the bioproduct, and it said 51% of it would biodegrade in a year under conditions of biologically controlled landfill. You thought, okay. And then my other thought was, well, what happens to the other 49%? And when does that degrade, if ever? So we haven't, they call it bio, and I find that really misleading. And it's not, it's obviously not. Yeah, and that is one of the the massive problems we have is around greenwashing um, and, you know, know, deliberate attempts or sometimes often not even deliberate attempts. They're just... It's just what happens, you know, the misleading of people around what something does. Because, yes, you know, you see this with lots of forms of plastic. They're described as compostable or biodegradable. But then when you look into it, that's only under certain conditions, which are almost impossible to replicate in normal life. You know, you uh, or, in, or the effort you have to go to to get into the right place would use up even more carbon. There might be one landfill site in Britain that's capable of actually doing that. <laughs> I thought biologically controlled landfill. I kind of thought, what's yeah. that? I oh, know it's not none of the ones I've driven past with no. eagles flying over. Um, perhaps they're the biological controlled. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But um, perhaps they have a. I don't know. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's a massive massive issue. A lot of this stuff, and it, you know, you see the same with growing media as well. You know, where growing media comes, you know, the composts come in these plastic packages. And, you know, they'll have as many words like bio or organic or God knows what else written on them. And then you look at, well, what do I actually do with this great big plastic bag? And it'll say something like, you know, recyclable in very small writing, you know, under very specific certain circumstances. And then you're thinking, what's the footnote to this is nowhere near where I am. Then. Yeah. <laughs> <What> am <laughs> if I it's got an A in the A at the beginning of the month and you might yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, nowhere near where you are. You know, probably, probably yeah, I think there. the whole peat issue obviously is moving forward, so that will be better. But until it's across the board everywhere, nurseries and so on, I know it's difficult. I know all the reasons about why they don't want to use peat free and I get all that. But until it's actually everybody, then we won't it won't move forward. Yeah, it, it is. You've got to get the economies of scale around these things um, to really push it forward. And the bottom line is a lot of work has been done. A lot of research has been done on alternatives. Um, and it's just really a matter of sharing the education from what I understand, because it's just like it just, you know, the alternatives just work differently. You've got to treat them differently. People have become very accustomed to peat and, you know, how you water and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. And you just, with the alternatives, yeah, there's, there's different ways of managing them. And once you understand those, you know, the, the best alternatives are as good. And I think the bottom line is a lot of the people, you know, consumers using peat, they don't even know what they're doing anyway. You know, <laughs> just, and that would include me most of the time. I'll be very, very honest. Um, you just kind of, oh, plant some brown stuff, shove in water, hope. Um, and that's what most people do. Or they, or they spread peat all over the place thinking that it's actually this nutrient rich thing that you put on your flower breads and it's going to you know induce loads of growth which again is you know it's not it's a structure within which something grows you know and you've still got to do everything else so I think if there's sufficient will um, there's no problem moving forward it's just basically about the economics for these big companies who've um, basically had free access to peat because they paid off the license decades ago um, wanting to use up those reserves that they've purchased frankly 
Um, yeah. which you can understand from a business point of view, but when you stand back from a planetary management point of view, it's like, well, unlucky guys, you've just backed the wrong horse, you know, and that happens in all areas of economics. You know, like imagine if you, you know, if you bought shares in Betamax videos, it's unlucky. That's that <laughs> kind of how it goes. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a, these, these things get very much, they, you know, they, next thing you know, they end up in the culture wars and God knows what else. And some of these things should just be a straightforward. That's just not a good idea. We've got to move on. Let's move on. Yeah. Can I, have a rant I, I often get asked, um, oh, but if we don't buy, um, if we don't buy flowers from Africa, Mm. Aren't we depriving them economically? That's always the thing. That that's not really very fair, is it? Because obviously, globally, if we don't, aren't, aren't they going to suffer if we don't buy them? That's always a big question. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The new Plants of Distinction Autumn Catalogue is now available and contains over a thousand different flower and vegetable seeds, with over hundred and fifty new and exciting varieties added this year alone. Cut flowers in an extensive array of individual colours are a speciality and added to this are many unusual annual and perennial seeds together with the hard to find heritage favourites. So if you're looking for something little different, be it choice cutting flowers suitable for both fresh and dried arrangements or cottage garden and container growing varieties, you need look no further. You can download or request a copy of the new autumn catalogue by visiting the website plantsofdistinction.co.uk where an exclusive 30% discount is available to all podcast listeners when ordering seeds by using the discount code CUTFLOWER30. Yeah, so yes, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of issues in these things. I mean, it's... There's no doubt that the flower industry is an important employer for people in Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, other, you know, some other African countries, Colombia. Um, a lot of investment has gone in, in into those into the industry um, in those countries. Part of it, local investment. A lot of it's actually European and American if it's Colombian um, investment, um, which is all part of how you know the global economy was restructured in the late 80s and the 1990s it was all about creating a safe space for western capital to be able to yeah. get around the world that's actually where all this came from rather than encouraging com- countries to have local and regional economies um, with some global trade the whole thing was on the globalization thesis just to you know very dull and academic but it's the reality of what drove it all um, you know it was all about trying to promote free access to for invest for, for the big investors so they'd have the whole world as their oyster as it were um so these things have happened and yes now that capital is sunk in you've got those farms in place yes you've got hundreds of thousands of people working on them earning live a living and thanks to a lot of um campaigning work and you know some useful standards and certifications those living standards are improving for quite a lot of the people so it is very very important so it is quite a value judgment to say, you know, go back to me and apartheid boycott, uh, because yeah, that, that has terrible effects if that happens on people as has happened, at the, you know, exactly three years ago. Actually, you know, when COVID struck, um, the Kenyan flower farms were hit terribly because they just couldn't export, and people were on the verge of being thrown into poverty 
um, in, a, in a very awful way. So a lot of work actually went on, which was very positive in terms of, you know, um, supporting people through through that crisis. But there are much, much bigger questions really about. So I think it goes well beyond the, the issue of flowers. It's actually about what is the role of an economy and yeah. to what extent should economies be more localized and regionalized? You know, how should trade really work in in a world in which we're um, re-examining carbon? Um, and I think as well, of course, you also get the debate that it's, it's with flowers. It's like if you produce flowers in a, in a heated greenhouse that's using, you know, fossil fuels, that's just as high a carbon footprint as flying them in from Kenya. Yeah. So that becomes another issue. And then the local thing, I think, is also fascinating because it's like, well, what is local anyway? Because the British Isles are pretty big. You know, Holland and its greenhouses are closer to southern England than northern Scotland is. So which is local? And yet you put a jack on and go, it's British. We must have that. And you go, yeah, but it's only 200 miles to, to where this has actually come from in Holland. It's 500 miles up there. So there's, you know, what does mm. a mile mean? What is the impact of that mile? And it does come back to a couple of things. I think one of which is personal values, um, you know, in terms of what people think matters. But then it also comes down to the science. It's like, you know, so what is actually having the most significant impact? You know, if, if that's what drives your values is impact. Well, what are those impacts and for whom and over what time frame um, as well? And, and that going back to your point about people not having a clue where a flower comes from. Well, it's very, very hard to make that choice because you just have no information at the minute unless you buy from the person down the road who you know is growing it in that field but do you know they're not sneakily chucking a load of fertilizer all over it you know how, how do you yeah. get that um guaranteed um you know as a, as a factor so there's there's so many really you know academic it's all really interesting how all these things work but as a when you're not an academic and you're being a normal person it gives you a right headache because how do you make good choices you know what is a good choice and for whom um you know and for me, I think at the moment we, I think we all, you know, well, particularly those of us who've got more disposable income than others, you know, we ought to be thinking more about these bigger things and putting our our pounds into things that are less damaging for the environment and society because environment and people are un, under huge threat um, at the moment. So I think in terms of going back to your point around production in faraway lands well there's a lot of work going on to reduce those footprints um so for example a lot of the flowers out of colombia are actually sea freighted into the u.s market and sea freight has something like 10 percent of the carbon impact of flying so that's a good thing it's not zero nowhere near but it's better um and there's, and there's more being sea freighted out of east africa as well so, um you know so that, that is certainly reducing the negatives and it's significantly less than growing in greenhouses um you know in northern europe in winter where where the impacts are huge so it, it's pretty complex stuff um to get mm. around and i think one's got to be very careful of not just going oh british is best you've got to go yeah on what criteria where's the evidence you know and, and what really matters um but ultimately all any of these products are going to have some kind of um, impact and that also has to be considered but one of the things we're very keen on encouraging from an academic point of view is looking at wider impacts so it can be things like well 
what about the biodiversity on your farm as a whole? You know, if you're growing flowers and then you've got oak trees lining the fields in some nirvana world, imagine that. Um, well, actually, if, if growing those flowers is enabling you to maintain that, you know, oak hedge, which might be two, three hundred years old, you, you're actually having a really positive effect on the environment because of the carbon sequestration that occurs through those trees. Um, and if, you know, you, you're, you know, you're not using chemicals and you've got lots of wildlife that's running around as well, flitting about, you've actually got some insects, um, whatever, then again, you've got all these positives. So the, these kind of things are now starting to creep into debate in the flower industry, the, the big, big industry. Um, you know, and there are even some of the big commercial players are now starting to look at how they can improve their biodiversity impacts and, and so forth to be to be more positive. So, so, you know, and it's all driven by, of course, you know, a the, the bigger picture, but because of folk who are making a lot of noise at ground level. Yeah, um, it's driven by two things, isn't it? Noise at ground level and price. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I yeah, price is, <laughs> price is a funny old thing. <laughs> It's, it's but I think with Brexit and with the price, I mean, I watch the, the price of the imported flowers into the UK and I, I track it just to see what's happening. Mm. And I can see the price increasing for sure, mm. because Brexit has done that, whatever. You know, there are now now an importation tax and so on. And so therefore, price may drive this market where people will buy more local because of the price, in which mm. case they're not making conscious decision from an environmental, but it will end up being that. Mm. They're making it from a price point of view, and that's that's fine because in the end that will be the environmental decision. But price will drive that market a lot. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This podcast episode is sponsored by First Tunnels, leaders in domestic and commercial polytunnels. A polytunnel is an amazing protective environment for plants, vegetables, and flowers extending any growing season. And whether you're growing for pleasure or commercially, whether you go for a small or a large tunnel, you can be assured of the same high quality product from First Tunnels Polytunnels. I personally have three of their polytunnels. Two of them I've had for over 10 years and I highly recommend First Tunnels Polytunnels for their product and also for their great customer service, which is second to none. Do pop over to their website and take a look at their range www.firsttunnels.co.uk Yeah, yeah, price is the biggest biggest driver of all and it was it was interesting during the first year of covid that actually prices people were paying a lot more for flowers. I mean, one of the florists who was part of our uh, part of our project and he said it was the first time we'd ever done a 300 pound bouquet he said, great people were you know, people had money or some people had money because you know they weren't spending it on travel or going out or whatever and you know and were buying flowers and paying much higher prices but then that's all corrected if you like and everybody's now saying how things are moving back to 2019 levels in terms of uh, pricing and so forth but then you've got the added problem of the cost of living crisis cost of energy you know cost of energy which has had a big effect on production in Holland, um, where you know a lot of I think forty percent of some you know some areas greenhouses were mothballed because it was just too expensive to grow flowers, and the people who owned the greenhouses were making more money selling the energy um, into the grid or selling it back if they bought it on the futures market than they would have done from growing 
flowers or even vegetables. So there's all these, weird, you know, there's some very strange things go on in industries. It's not just about growing the flowers or whatever. It's it's part of other economies. So there's lots and lots of, of challenges. But I think there's a very exciting space for the British flower grower or the local flower grower globally, you know, if you want to look at it in that way. Um, coming up and I think that's going to apply in lots of ways because after the, the mass globalization decades you know there is definitely some kind of change going on within the world economy yes globalization is there it's always going to be there but within it there's going to be I think a lot more localization and regionalization driven by geopolitics um, economics and the climate crisis and of course the climate crisis plays into geopolitics and economics um, because it you know, affects the, the cost of doing business. So there's, there's lots of lots of opportunities, and I think it's. I'm quite uh, envious of you in that academic world, being at the forefront of it all and seeing it all happening. And yeah, I'm quite envious. It, well, it's, yeah, it is interesting seeing it all. Um, but on the other hand, it can get quite depressing because you see the bad stuff. <laughs> um, you know, and when you look at a lot of the policy pronouncements, you know, which just aren't pushing hard enough on the areas that need to be pushed on. Um, and, and that's very worrying. But on the other hand, when you see the, the buzz from people who are trying to make a difference, and we, as you know, we had an event at Coventry University last week with um, over four, about 40 odd people were present at this, and it's looking at the opportunities for a, a UK initiative to be set up to promote um, collaboration around sustainable floriculture. Um, a really exciting thing and you've got people there all the way you know from retailers you know the big big box retailers um their suppliers there's you know <clears throat> four major suppliers in the uk um three of whom had direct representation in the room and another one was keeping in touch as it were um and then you've got loads of folk from flowers from the farm there as well and people in the middle if you like and the buzz um from everybody was amazing um but what was really interesting was just the the buzz from the flowers from the farm folk you know who were just incredible with their knowledge and the scientific knowledge the commercial knowledge of what they're doing but this real desire to make a difference to actually yeah. be doing their bit but not just doing their bit on their you know hectare or half hectare or whatever um and influencing a few brides to you know have a more sustainable bouquet but trying to work together to create a movement to just encourage people generally to to think more progressively and just ask questions um about their choices and try and make better choices which i think was just really exciting and it wasn't there was nothing there was no real sort of because sometimes these things can get very defensive and aggressive and you know that's really bad we mustn't do that you know don't buy from um you know anything from africa because it's just bad and it's like well actually there's a bit more nuance in that you know as i said earlier so it was very interesting one of the people who took part because they actually put up on the wall um on the presentation their eight criteria for making a decision and it was a hierarchy so if you've got to produce you know a bouquet for you know for your bride if you like um you know then well, your first choice would be you know grown on your own patch and then that you go down the hierarchy and you'll go okay so if it's going to come from abroad i want to see a certification on it i would like to know as much as i can about the provenance of it um and then there were kind of like you know the red lines i'm not going to do this you know if i don't know anything about where it's come from or if i know it's 
definitely come from a greenhouse in Holland that has been powered by gas, that's out. But if it's come from Holland and it's a supplier who uses um, bio, verified bio means of production, then therefore the carbon footprint is lower. And that's cool. So it's really interesting seeing people wanting that level of information and then wanting to communicate that to their, their consumers. And what that's doing is it's driving this need for more knowledge to, so that people can make more informed choices so that you have genuinely traceable supply chains. Um, and I think in flowers, that, that's just such an exciting thing. You know, if you, if you can get to a point where you can say, here's a bouquet, there's 12 stems in it, and this is where they've actually come from. This, you know, here's a QR code and here's, yeah. here's their biography. And that's a really interesting and exciting thing. And the, and the more you get that kind of drive, um, the more likely it is to happen. Yeah, the, the whole collaboration, it has to happen with collaboration. But the whole mm. supply chain needs collaboration because mm. no one flower farmer in the UK would have everything a florist would want anyway. So without collaboration, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and the whole collaboration of you know, this whole supply chain and people understanding it. Um, it, I, I mean, I've been a flower farmer for 12 years and I've certainly seen a difference in the last three, I would say, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, and I think, like you say, COVID, you know, the, the early stages of COVID, um, you know, did, did get a lot of people to reflect on life, what they want from it. And I, and I think also there was that period of time as well where life, you know, if you were relatively well off, seemed fairly peaceful. Yes. You know, I live horrifyingly near the M6 and lockdowns were great. Because yeah, I enjoyed it. Any noise. And you, you actually you could hear all the wildlife and you could see the wildlife. Um, and, there were, you know, there were no aeroplanes buzzing over and all the rest of it. And it was kind of like this, this vision into what life can actually be like when you take some of those things out of it. Now, of course, if life was like that all the time, we'd be living in huts again because the economy had collapsed. And maybe that's not so good, but somewhere in the middle, there's probably some kind of balance where, you know, we can have much more ecologically sustainable ways of living um, that actually are more rewarding and healthier for most human beings. You know, and, and I think the, to me, horticulture and the flower industry should be playing a big role in raising awareness because it is a way of connecting with every consumer and making everybody think about what goes on around them and yeah. about their own role in it and the, the impacts of those things on them. Like you say, picking it said earlier, you know, like picking up a bouquet that's got chemicals on it and then you can get expert. That's a bad thing. But picking up a bouquet that doesn't have chemicals on and it smells beautiful, looks beautiful, gives you an endorphin rush, it's, it's amazing. And, and then if you know where that's been grown, it's, you know, provided a habitat for 1,203 bees and 73 ants or whatever. That's even more amazing, you know. So there's really good, good stuff. But I, I'm actually going to have a rant about one thing. You can choose me not to put this in. Artificial, <laughs> artificial grass. Yep. Um, drives me mad on a and lot me. of levels. Um, and obviously... The fact that artificial grass is there is very questionable. Um, you know, I haven't seen any compelling reason why why it should be there, and yet it's become a really growing part, as it were, ironically, of of the marketplace. You know, you, you don't seem to go into any shop now, and there isn't an artificial grass bit, and it's it's increased hugely in terms of its relevance in terms of economics for the horticultural sector. And actually, this makes me really angry because 
This is only really happening on a major level in the last three or four years after the horticultural sector has made a big noise about sustainability, after David Attenborough's Blue Planet. You know, Blue Planet came out as many, it's not that many years ago. You know, plastic straws were, were like <clears throat> the new, new asbestos. They were like, you know, totally evil thing. No one should have every corporate scrabbling around trying to find an alternative. Toothbrushes are turning into bamboo now. You know, all these kind of things happening. And then you've got horticulture, which should be, as I just said, the beacon of shifting, understanding, um, appreciation for the natural environment. And you go to a horticultural trade fair and there'll be a section of it that is literally wall to wall plastic grass. And even worse than that, I think, is plastic outdoor plants or these fences that have got plastic ivy. in. I mean, ivy is the easiest thing to grow ever. In fact, you don't, you know, in fact, it's the worst thing because it just takes over everything. So it's like, <laughs> it's not difficult. If you want ivy, just have ivy, trim it every year. It's fine. Why would you go and buy a plastic thing? You know, and the fact it, it just really jars that that's become a significant proportion of horticultural turnover at a time when everybody was saying plastic's bad. It's and old, we, isn't it? And it, it's like how, you know... It, it's, it's like going back 40 years or 30 years and going oh i've got some new cigarettes available now it's like what are you doing you know because it, it just <laughs> so counter to the messaging of, of what the industry should be doing and i you know really struggle to understand why you know leaders in the industry aren't just saying no no this is just not what we should be doing we cannot possibly describe ourselves as a sustainable industry we you know here's our here's our latest sustainability plan oh would you like some artificial turf <laughs> Um, it, it's it's just bonkers, you know. You don't keep bringing out new products, particularly ones like like that that are, you know. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head. I follow a Twitter site, which you may have to, when I mention its name, have to bleep me. It's called Shit Lawns, um, and they just bring up all these pictures of you know the latest aberration around plastic grass, you know, that someone spotted, and make sarcastic comments about it. But it is really prevalent, you know, right where I live. It's just awful how many people have, you know, you look on Google, Google Earth to look at your neighbour yeah. and you go, how many of you idiots, <laughs> how many of you folk, how many of my neighbours have gone and put this stuff down and why? You know, and why? Horrible, absolutely horrible. Um, but because it's there and because people think it's maintenance free, but it's like. And it's easy. Yeah, and it's easy, but it's, it's it, the frustration, as I say, for me is ultimately that, it's become an increasing part of the marketplace at the very time when we all know plastic is a no-no. I wonder if consumers don't see it as plastic because it kind of looks green and kind of mm. look, I don't know. Well, it's I mean, the marketing behind it is very clever. It is. You know, Maintenance-free and you, know, you can have these Sundays to yourself when you don't need to go out and lawnmower it anymore and hey how about rewilding then let's just leave it let's not worry about it at all yeah. um you know I, there's an area of my grass that i just leave and it's beautiful and it's mm. rewilding and i quite like that so why not kind of mm. yeah it's quite odd yeah quite it odd. is and, it, and that that's what gets depressing because it's like you know the, the scientific um arguments could not be more compelling around climate change biodiversity impacts and then you see those kind of things happening. And then it's not niche, it's, it's, it's increasingly significant. And it's like, what, do you, what is this all about? You know, how can you make sense of this? You know, are human beings that lazy 
um, you know, yes, we're all fairly lazy at times, but it's like, you know, it, it surely it's got to register with the consumer as well as with these companies that this isn't a great idea just because plastic grass is made from partly from recycled tires. That's not a great argument either because it's just all those fragments are leaching down into the soil, which is really bad news for any earthworm that happens to be underneath. You know, it just, I don't know, it, that, that that kind of thing is, is really, really galling. Um, and and that, to me, that offsets every sustainable initiative. That it does, actually. You know, it's like, no, just just take the easy win. Don't do stuff like that. Let's, let's do some do some other things. And then you can have your section of your garden centre that's about butterflies and bees. I know. I know. Butterflies and bees and maybe a pond would be really good. And let's ditch the artificial grass. Yeah. yeah, and let's have a bit of rewilding. Let's encourage mm. our bees back again. And yeah, God, I'm I'm going to be saying this for another till I'm my deathbed. My legacy will be somewhere along the line. We we did something. We moved that little little thing just a little bit into sustainability. Yeah, and I, and I, I think the industry, like I say, you know, to be positive, I think the industry pockets of the industry can can make a big difference and the more folk like yourself are you know getting out there and talking about these things and your listeners go out and talk to their neighbors and friends and family and so forth you know we can get quite a significant change in behavior on the, the ground and it, but it's just about enjoying what 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 these things are you know what a garden is what flowers are and i think we can all get far more enjoyment and benefit from them by being more sustainable in, in our approach to these things you know and um but it's crucial to keep you know you need people like me and colleagues who are doing this you know trying to understand science um and to try and call you know try and call out stuff that isn't so progressive but equally to help promote the stuff that is progressive um and but then it has then that information has to go out and be pushed by organizations you know like you know whether it's podcasts whether it's rita feldman's sustainable forestry network you know, the, the BFA actually have got more into sustainability and, you know, they did circulate our um, projects leaflet all about sustainable floristry. Um, so, you know, to every one of their members about three years ago. So hopefully some of them read it and <laughs> learned something, but, you know, um, and we just have to keep on this momentum. Um, and you've also got to be prepared to accept, you know, what advice that was right, seemed right two years ago might not be right now. Because yeah things change we learn more about things you know um and you know a lot of initiatives and innovations actually want they can look good and then when you put them practice them you find there's problems and then you change but that's fine it doesn't matter that something's wrong as long as you gave it a go because to move towards a, a better future you know we've got to have trial and error as well but that doesn't mean accepting clearly bad ideas because they've got the word bio or eco in the beginning of them brilliant so a few questions to wrap up. We could, I could talk all day. If you were on a desert island, what would you want with you? Who would you take? What would, would I, you take? Well, would bit, it be sustainable? Would it be so well? Uh, well, I was a bit worried about a desert island given global warming and rising sea level. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you'd certainly need someone who had to build a boat. That would be a starting point. Um, depends on how high it is. Desert island, eh? there's a thought. Um, but I did actually think you know one could take one for the team of humanity and take Donald Trump. Get him out of the way. Yes, that would be good. Me, I'm not sure I could put up with that. Um, <laughs> you know, Putin possibly. No, no, he'd just kill me and eat me. So that's no good. That's uh, true. <laughs> well, at least I thought about, you know, the wider greater good. Who would I take? Well, obviously, it's boring if I just say someone from the family. 
you know so obviously one would assume they have visitation rights and you know get to see me as much as they can stomach so that that would be fine who would I go for it's really tricky and I thought well I don't know on the one hand you want someone really practical who knows how to chop trees sustainably harvest trees so that you can build your boat or your house or whatever um on the other hand you want someone who's good company so I don't know I ended up thinking you know what wrong what would be wrong with a bit of time with Stephen Fry a British treasure (laughs) a chap who loves cricket yeah he was a very nice guy thousands of anecdotes lots of humor why not? You know, you, yeah. you know, you'd, you know, you'd have a pretty pleasant time most of the time with, with Stephen hanging about, and uh, there'd be lots. Of you'd work. be laughing, and lots of beach cricket, which would be fine for me. You know, if that's what you've got to do all the time, I'm a bit worried about how practical it'd be. I'd probably end up being the practical one, which would be slightly alarming. But there you go. Sure, we'd sure we'd find a, sure we'd find a way. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you'd find a way. So, who's inspired you in your career? Then, who's inspired you to do all this? Keep going, get up every day. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well, i mean it, it's it's pretty well you know you, obviously you've got specific individuals inspire you you know and, and your inspiration as you're going through the phases of your career and i've been very lucky certainly on the academic side um you know people like uh, tony bins who was you know one of my lecturers at sussex who i'm still good friends with who really got me into development stuff and uh thinking about people within development um you know very very inspirational and colleagues i've worked with such as uh, cheryl McEwen at, at durham and uh, alex hughes at, at newcastle and uh, nick henry who's also at coventry who's one of my phd supervisors and they're all people who've inspired me in various ways and i think what what all those four folk have in common is um kindness humanity uh, humility, uh, but a real quest for uncovering and learning and sharing stuff, uh, which I think, you know, and, and ultimately being people focused, you know, really, yes, you know, people within the environment, if you want to put it that way around, you know, that's the, taking that particular view. So they've been people who've been certainly a very personal inspiration. You step back into um, people you don't know, but they obviously have an impact on you. Well, obviously, you know, if you were growing up, you know, <laughs> my era our era you know obviously Attenborough was on telly and you can't help but say that no. you know his work has been hugely inspirational and again it's it's not just the work it's the person behind it that passion you know someone you just got to respect for for where they're coming from you know there's, there's no sort of you know he's not doing it because he's going to trade some shares in you know in, you know life on earth or whatever he's doing it because yeah. really yeah. you know and, and that, that's that's it and he's someone who's also learned throughout his life which again i think is a really important thing is we're, we're never finished products as human beings we were always learning our values yeah there's core to it but they should be shifting you shouldn't be in the same place you were 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago and i think that's a problem a lot of people have is they just stay with the same ways of looking at things the same value set throughout their life and actually you've got to be open to new ideas you know i mean you think of the changes in our lifetime it's just been bonkers and the ability to cope with, with that, you know, it does does take a lot of reflection. So there's yeah, some inspiration, you know, other people who inspire me. I mean, there's, I think there's people who prepared to put their head above the parapet, um, you know, and speak truth to power, as to use the phrase, yeah. you know, whether, you know, that can be a Greta Thunberg. You may not, one may not agree with various things, the way, whatever, but it's like, put yourself out there ultimately in a very altruistic way i think that's incredibly admirable um you know for for a much bigger purpose 
um, you know, and I can look at academics like Kevin Anderson at Manchester, who's a big guy on climate change, and he has he calls it like it is, but it's all based on the science, you know, the way things really are. He you know, rips policy and policymakers to pieces, um, you know, but all in a very measured way. Andy can communicate, you know, um, his ideas more broadly. Um, another guy called Tim Lang, who does the same in the food space, you know, um, another very complex area. So, yeah, that we know we're very lucky that there are some very inspirational people around, you know, um, which is just as well because we need them. And I think it's very hard for people now because with social media, they just cop so much abuse, you know. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that's so awful when you, you see very nice, very decent people being abused. And it's like, oof. You know, it's, it's it's terrible, and it, it really doesn't help any of us at all because we we need people who are prepared to stand up and call call things out if they say so. Yeah, there's there's plenty of inspirational people around, and we need to focus on them more and less on the the others who tend to get yeah. more more the others airtime. we're trying to put over here. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, any thoughts on future plans? Yeah, well, do you have I mean, a the... book looming, or do you have a what do you have? Yeah, well the. Um... The flower space is, is is literally growing very rapidly. So, you know, within our project, the project Jill and I run, the Sustainable Cut Flowers project, um, that's definitely going from strength to strength um, in terms of its linkages into different parts of the industry. And this um, sustainable, sustainable collaboration initiative, you know, looks like it's going to take off and we'll be deeply involved in that. And I think it's a really, really exciting opportunity for the uh, the flower industry yes it's labeled as the uk industry but it you know um connects globally and, and the space within that for for all stakeholders and i think that could well be the the place within which a lot happens that's really progressive going forward as you know and it's going to be what people make of it as well you know if people get involved um with the right attitude and want to create change then it will happen um, and I think, you know, for us, that's a really exciting thing to be involved in as, as academics, because being an academic now is a very different business than what it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, um, you know we, we tend to be a lot more engaged outside of the university in real world stuff, which, um, you know, is, is very exciting. So and the cut flowers thing is a great area to work and it links across into horticulture, whether ornamental or fruit and veg as well which i'm also interested in and there's a huge amount going on there in terms of uh, trying to improve agri-production horticultural production to be more sustainable because at the end of the day you know we've got a big population on this planet to feed um and it isn't just about volume of food it's about the quality of that food and that's part of the debate that's been really really missing um while everybody's got obsessed with how many calories it's like yeah but what's in them you know, you, you know, you can give people 2000 calories a day, but if, you know, if you're missing half the key nutrients, it's pointless. <laughs> well, not yeah. pointless, but it's semi-pointless. And, and I think that debate's really interesting as well. And you've got to keep the, the production areas healthy, which is the, another big, big issue, you know, is how you, because so much of the growth has been fueled by massive inputs, which just aren't sustainable. You know, chucking mm. chemicals all over the place isn't sustainable. So how do you manage to, you know, have much lower input horticulture, agriculture going forward and produce much healthier product for, for everybody. So there's an awful lot of work to do, Ross, <laughs> but it's all very interesting. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's exhausting, isn't it, in some yeah. respects, because it's such a big job to do. Mm. And you just got to take one day at a time and think, what can I do today? Yeah. Because really? oh. otherwise the whole thing is like, oh, this is too big. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to chat with you. is a great way to start. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. David, I'd like to thank you for coming to join me. That was brilliant. Honestly, I could chat all day. But the same values. We're trying to do the same thing. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I can see next five years being really interesting. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a lot going to go on in the next five years. And I think it's a terrific space for, I think there's huge opportunities at the moment, actually, for people who want to get involved in small scale um, flower production in, in the UK. Yeah. You know, I think, I, I think the only real issue is about access to land, which obviously with the, with the way land values have gone nuts in the UK for various reasons, that's a big problem. Um, but where people are able to get their hands on a bit of land, I think their opportunities are huge. And, and I think given the creativity and dynamism there is amongst, you know, the largely ladies, the formidable ladies of the small scale farming, um, flower farming community, you know, I think some really fascinating, exciting stuff's going to come out. And I think the more sharing of ideas and knowledge that can be within that network and then that network up within the industry more broadly, the better it's going to be for everybody. And I think, you know, the, con the consumer in is going to be very well served with some fascinating and exciting choices going forward. Brilliant. Lovely. David, I want to thank you for joining me. We, we shall carry on these conversations, I'm sure. No doubt. And I, um, yeah, just want to thank you. Pleasure. No, thank you so much for the invite. It's been really great to chat to you, Ros. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to next week's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate and review on your podcast app. We do have some wonderful free resources on our website at thecutflowercollective.co.uk. We also have two free Facebook communities, which we'd love you to join. For farmers or those who want to be flower farmers, we have Cut Flower Farming, Growth and Profit in Your Business. And our other free Facebook group is Learn with the Cut Flower Collective for those starting out on their flower journey. All of the links are below. I look forward to getting to know you all.